0: So in the confession that Jesus is Lord, we find the heart of any Christian understanding of politics. Jesus is Lord is the heart of a Christian vision of politics and political engagement. Good morning, Cross United. I'm so glad you've joined us for this message online. I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 2. It's going to take a minute, we'll get there, I promise. This is the second sermon in our series, Our Place in Our Nation, Power, Politics, and the People of God, where we're looking at how, as Christians, and specifically this political moment, how we engage the world around us in the area of politics. And last week, what we did is we, we found in the normal course of our study of the Gospel of John— that there was this political committee, this political group, the Sanhedrin, that had met and had decided what they were going to do with Jesus. And we saw some implications there for politics in our own lives, in our own day, in our place, in our nation, as they were concerned to preserve the power um, of their place and their nation there in Israel under Roman imperial rule. And so what we're going to do this week is we're going to continue this series Um, And talk about this topic because it really is um, so important. And we talked about this last week, but it's important for three reasons. It's important because of the scripture that God has led us into this moment, uh, this section of the Gospel of John. And we're going to kind of just build on that foundation from last week. It's important because of the season we're in with this election, this, this bitter and nasty um, partisan election that's on the horizon. It's just this divide in, in our nation, in our culture. And most importantly, it's important because of the Savior, because we are passionate for the glory of Christ in our community, in our generation, in our place, in our time. And so we're talking about this not just because it's controversial. We're talking about this because it's important. We're talking about this because we need to respond in a Christian way to the political moment that we find ourselves in. It's not enough to just ignore it and pretend like it's not there. It's not enough to just go all in and become uh, a partisan political hack. We have to engage this in a Christian way. And so I encourage you um, in your Bibles there. We're going to be in Psalm 2. We're going to get there, like I said, in just a minute. And we're we're going to talk about now this morning uh, some principles of Christian political engagement and a vision of Christian of a Christian vision of politics. In uh, 2001, it was actually September 11th, 2001. My friend Sean and I packed up his 1987 Honda Civic, and we took uh, to the road to drive from Northern California to the Canadian border. Now we weren't fleeing the nation—the country because of fear, as the terror kind of pulsed across the continent from the 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 attack and the collapse of the Twin Towers. Um, We'd been planning for a long time to take this gap year at a small uh, Bible training center in British Columbia, Canada. And uh, we got to that center there a few days after September 11th, and we got into Canada, and we took the ferry across um, from the mainland to Vancouver Island, and then drove and took another ferry to this little island, uh, embedded there in the in the cold waters, the Pacific Ocean, um, in s- southwestern uh, British Columbia, Canada, and we settled into this this place where there were people from all over the world, and they had us living in these cabins in in the in the woods. It was really really just amazing, and and I had. Uh, these roommates and I had a guy named Marcus who was from Germany and I had a, another roommate named Syriac and he was from India and I had a, a couple of guys from the United States and a couple Canadians and and there were people from all over the world and we, we began to see at least for me that was a moment and it was really strange to be there right in the in the days and the weeks and the months after 9-11 because I'd never been more proud about being an American And I'd never been more chastened in in my sense of arrogance about my American identity because I began to see that I was not just an American and that these guys were not just German or Indian, but that we were united by something bigger than those national ethnic identities. We were united by something that transcended the spaces and and the and the politics between us and the 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 and we were united by something that was bigger than the time of of, of the world we live in. We were united by a transnational and and trans temporal kingdom because we weren't just German or Indian or American. We were Christians. And we were united by our confession that Jesus is Lord. And there's something bigger that we belong to and that we're a part of. And so this morning, um, or whenever you happen to be watching this, I want to talk to you about this political principle that orders all of the rest of our pol- political and, 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 and s- social views of the world Um, And that is this confession that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord is the fundamental Christian political principle. We believe that in the claim that Jesus is king, we will get the order of everything else sorted out correctly. Um, This is important, like, like we've said, because we want to see the name of Christ given the glory that he is due. We exist as a church to help people find life like God intended by bringing people to God in wholehearted worship through the cross of Jesus Christ, by bringing people together in authentic community, and by sending people out on the joyful mission that God has for them in the world. And all of that, all of that is for the sake of the glory of God in Christ. And so we need to get this right so that our vision is clear, so that Christ receives the glory that he's due. The first political principle of Christian, a Christian vision of politics is that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. When we get this right, everything else falls into place. All of the Hebrew scripture testifies to the fact that God, the creator of the universe and the covenant God of creation and, and with Abraham and Israel, that Yahweh, the Lord God, is the king, that he rules over all. And maybe the most undiluted form of this pattern of praise from the people of Israel is found in the Israelite hymn book, what we call the book of Psalms or the Psalter. In the Psalms, we see throughout this claim and this praise that Jesus, not Jesus yet, we're getting to Jesus, but Yahweh is king, that Yahweh is king. We see in the first two Psalms that, um, that the, the themes of the entire Psalter are introduced. So in Psalm 1, "Blessed blesses the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, but meditates on the law of the Lord. And so we see in Psalm 1, the way of the Lord's instruction. And then in Psalm 2, we have this Psalm that shows us the rule of the Lord and his anointed son. So if you're there in Psalm 2, will you look with me there? Why do the nations rage? And the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger, and he terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree He said to me, You are my son, and today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter, and you will shatter them like pottery. So now, kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the son, or he will be angry, and you will perish in your rebellion, for his anger may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge in him are happy. Now, we can't unpack this entire song here, but but it's clear. The point of it is clear. The Lord is king, and so is his son. And Israel, when they sang this, they would have understood the Lord referring to Yahweh, their covenant God, the God of creation and covenant, and, and his anointed son would have been clearly referring to the king of Israel typified in David, the adopted son of the Lord, who was the the one empowered with the authority of the Lord in the nation of Israel. And when they would have said that Yahweh is king, they wouldn't have understood this in just like a, a metaphorical or spiritual sense, like that he's king in their heart or something like that, although that was true. Not even that he was just king in his temple. They would have understood that the Lord is king over all, that the nations have no claim on the kingship and the throne of the world. And when they try to rebel against him, he sort of laughs out the original resistance is futile. There's no rebelling against Yahweh the king. And the Psalms, if you you just go through the book of Psalms and just kind of look for the word king, there are all these Psalms called royal Psalms. And and the kingship or the lordship of Yahweh is clear all throughout the Psalms, as it is throughout the whole scripture. Um, And as the people sung this second Psalm, they they sang a truth that was even more deep and, and, and even more Profound than they even fully realized. Because when they sang to the Lord, you are my son, today I have become your father, it becomes clear as the scripture unfolds that that is a truth referring to the heart of reality itself and to the life of God himself. And we see as the prophets, you know, Hosea 3, 5, Zechariah 9, 9, pretty much all of Isaiah, Jer- Jeremiah 23, 5, and, and many, many others, that God is promising that he will send a true and great king to his people. Then we see in Luke 1:30 30 through 33, this angel, this messenger appears to this girl in the flyover country of Israel, Nazareth of Galilee, and says, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have No end. Unlike David, the adopted son, the king, this was an eternal son. This was the true son. And so when the when the people of Israel sang, You are my son, today I've become your father, or you are my son, today I have begotten you, they were singing of the mystery of the Trinity itself. They were singing about the Father eternally begetting his son, together eternally breathing out the Spirit, and the eternal reality of the life of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one eternal God in three eternally distinct persons. And this divine King, the second person of the Trinity had come into the world, taking human nature into his person so that that sesame seed sized human in Mary's womb was the King of the cosmos. Psalm 2, 7 says that he assumed the form of a servant and humbly obeyed the father to the point of being executed by crucifixion. And that in this cross was the revelation of his crown in his shame was his glory in his humility was his exaltation. Look at Philippians 2, 9 through 11. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. When when the earliest Christians would have sung this this hymn that Paul the apostle quotes in this letter to the church at Philippi they would have heard an echo of Isaiah 45:23 that says that every knee will bow that and and every tongue will confess that Yahweh the Lord is king and so we see here that Yahweh is king. We see in the Old Testament that Jesus is king because Jesus is Yahweh, that Jesus is the true king of the world, the true king of creation and covenant who has come in human nature to bring the kingdom into the world. And he will receive his glory, which will then rise to the glory of the Father, because they are one God in distinct persons. And so they have the same glory. And to glorify the Son is to glorify the Father and the Spirit as well. So when we confess that Jesus is Lord and we heartfully believe that God raised him from the dead, Romans 10:9 says, we are saved. We're brought into and drawn into his kingdom, his city, his empire. His eternal rule. God is not just in the business of saving sinners from their sin, although he absolutely is in that business. He's in the business of saving sinners from their sin into a kingdom, into a new political reality. We're told in Scripture, 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. People confess Christ by the power of the spirit to the father's glory as the eternal triune lordship of God is made known in the world. And in confessing that Jesus is Lord, what we're doing is we're swearing an oath of citizenship in a kingdom that is not of this world. Of a kingdom that has broken into the world and will one day take over the world in fullness. So in the confession that Jesus is Lord, we find the heart of any Christian understanding of politics. Jesus is Lord is the heart of a Christian vision of politics and political engagement. This is the preeminent Christian political principle. This truth anchors us to reality more fully than gravity anchors us to the earth. And from this point, we can see that Jesus is Lord, like those old shirts that used to say baseball is life and the rest is just details. We can say that Jesus is Lord and the rest is just details. But those details, they do matter. They matter because they are ordered to serve The glory of Christ. And so the rest of these political details, these Christian political principles we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about two more in this message, and then we'll talk about a few more next week. These are all under the heading of Jesus is Lord. So to serve the Lord, let's get into those details. This is the second Christian political principle, that God has ordained human government to preserve order Justice and peace. God designed the world to be governed by human rulers. He created Adam and Eve to rule over the creation. He, he created and the, the world to be ordered under godly and good leadership and just righteous leadership. And vacuums of leadership, they, they sort of suck the order and the goodness and the justice out of creation. A vision for justice threads through the scripture. Because Psalm 99 4 says, the mighty king loves justice. The word for justice is the Hebrew word mishpat, which um, is not just like getting what you're due, but it has more to do with comprehensive goodness and order than merely receiving what you're owed. Mishpat envisions the world as sort of this garment interwoven by the master weaver, this fabric of all creation that God has designed for our good and for his glory. So what injustice does is it starts to fray the threads of that fabric and it starts to tear apart the integrity of the good creation that God has made so that things don't work like God intended them to work. And when there's no godly and good leadership in human society, that fabric begins to unravel. We see in the book of Judges, in those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did whatever seemed right to him. Judges twenty-one twenty-five. It, unrighteousness and evil and justice, these have no place in the throne room of any human ruler because they have no place in the throne room of the divine ruler. Because all rulers have their authority as a sanctified trust from the divine king. The scripture refers to this entrusting of authority or this relationship as a covenant. All human rulers have a covenantal trust or responsibility to rule and to administer justice and order and peace under the lordship of God. God brings his kingdom into the world through covenants. We see that throughout the the scripture um, in in the covenant with creation and with Noah and with Abraham and with Moses and with David in the new covenant. But um, theologians have pointed out and the scripture shows that there's actually a more primal covenant that's sort of the basis for these earthly covenants. If you look there at Luke twenty two and through twenty nine, Jesus says that it says something interesting. He says, "I bestow on you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one on me." And what Jesus does in this verse is he calls us into the eternal council of the Trinity, where we see that the word there for bestow is actually the 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 verb form of covenant. That the Father covenanted to him a kingdom. That that um, that there is this eternal relational connection in between the Father, Son, and Spirit in which they agree to bring creation and redemption into the world. Um, and, And older theologians called this the pactum salutis or the covenant of redemption. And this eternal covenant is the basis for all of the covenants in scripture and is the the the, the theological basis of the covenantal rule of any human ruler, that they are simply bestowed or delegated authority as an emissary of the rule of the true king and the true ruler. Jonathan Lehman says in his his book, Political Church, that politics is nothing more or less than the mediating of God's covenantal rule. What scripture says, and we can say this in another way, God puts people into power. The power five of imperial rule in the scripture, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Rome, and then the intertestamental conquest of Greece, God ruled over all of these, and they all were doing they what they did because God had put them into power. Daniel 2.21 says, he removes kings and establishes kings. Romans 13.1, there is no authority except, except from God, and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. So God appoints and designed human authority, human government, human political society to be put together so that there would be a just and peaceful society. Justice and peace are are both have these ideas of of a whole overarching fabric of goodness. Peace or the Hebrew word shalom is something God provides for his people and the people of God are encouraged to pray for all throughout the scripture. And just like justice doesn't just mean getting what you're owed, peace doesn't just mean the absence of conflict. Peace is a holistic flourishing in life and goodness. When, so, when, when the, the Messiah, the Prince of Peace, comes into the world, he establishes eternal peace with the nations. We see that in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, and Zechariah 9, 10. God establishes human governments to preserve order, justice, and peace. But of course, human governments fail more often than they don't. And that's our third political principle. Satan and sin have corrupted human government. God empowers governments with covenantal authority to establish order and justice and peace. And his cosmic authority authorizes human governments and human political society to do what it does in all sorts of different ways throughout human history. But human governments and human politics fail constantly. They fail in small ways and they fail in big ways. The the, the scripture is so realistic about the reality of the world we live in. Because while it says non-negotiably and absolutely that God is sovereign in authorizing human rule, it also never tries to hide the dark reality of human sin. From our first father's failure under the shade of that tree, scripture shows clearly that there's another power lurking in the shadows of human governing and political authority. Satan and the spiritual powers of darkness sneak into the nooks and the crannies of the halls of human authority, and they tempt and they twist and they pervert the hearts and the minds and the emotions and the actions of human leaders and political power players. And every political system and every political authority tends toward rebellion against God because of sin. Satan tempted to sin and then he uses sin and he, and he amplifies sin and people live into their sin and they love their sin and it leads to oppression injustice disorder and war We live in a world that is haunted by principalities and powers so when we talk about politics and government, we're not just talking about human things. We are talking about things that are haunted by the spiritual forces of this world. For example, we see this clearly in Daniel 10 verses 12 and 13. Daniel has prayed and God has dispatched a, an angel, a messenger to help him. But it takes three weeks for this messenger to arrive. And when he finally does, he says, don't be afraid, Daniel. For from the first day that you purposed to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your prayers were heard. I have come because of your prayers, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia opposed me for 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me after I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Again, without squeezing all the details from this text, the the main thrust is very clear that there is more to human authority than meets the eye, that there is spiritual war in the midst of human governance and human politics. And although God ordains human governing authorities, these authorities sell their soul to Satan and sin and dark forces of evil and spiritual power and false worship and idolatry soak into the kingdoms and the kings of this world. And lest you think that I'm talking about your uh, non preferred political party, just hold that for one minute. Because every political system, every political vision, every political party is embedded with idolatry. Every government, every political structure tends to elevate the creature over the creator and is therefore idolatrous. In his great book, um, uh, Political Visions and Illusions, David Koizis explains that our modern um, political ideologies, whether liberalism, as in not necessarily what we think of as liberalism, but a liberal free um, society, liberalism, conservatism, Democracy, nationalism, and socialism, all in their own unique ways, but inevitably tend toward idolatry. Every political system and every political party, whether the grand old party or the Democratic National Convention, the GOP or the DNC, the donkey or the elephant, tends to elevate creature over creator because Satan and sin corrupt human political power. No political ideology, no political structure, no party or platform escapes the effects of the fall. Now we're going to pause here. We're going to pause here. And that may seem like a discouraging note to end on. But I want you to be encouraged. And I want to circle back to the first and governing political principle that Christians hold above all the others that Jesus is Lord. Because when that human rulers fail us, and there are some that are better than others, there are some that are more just than others, some that are more ordered versus disordered than others, but, but inevitably they all fall short of the glory of God. And when that happens, whether in epic ways or in smaller ways, we turn and we say, Jesus is Lord and my his kingdom is not of this world and I am a citizen. I have sworn an oath of citizenship to his kingdom that transcends politics of our moment, the politics of our moment that transcends the national boundaries of our moment that transcends the, the moment itself and spans time and will one day in fullness reign over the cosmos. Jesus is Lord and friends. That is good news. Hope you'll join us again next week as we talk about the rest of cr- these Christian political principles on our way to trying to faithfully navigate our place in our nation, power, politics, and the people of God. God designed us for life, an abundant life with him and with one another. But there's a problem. Someone has taken our life. Jesus said the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. We're missing out on life like God intended because we go looking for life in all the wrong places. But there is a solution to this problem. Jesus said he came so that we may have life and have it in abundance. That's why Cross United Church exists, to help people find life like God intended. We believe life like God intended happens when three things are united in our lives. When we're brought to God in wholehearted worship through the cross of Jesus Christ, when we're brought together in authentic community, when we're deployed on the joyful mission that God has for us in the world, we experience fullness of life. Life like God intended, united in wholehearted worship, authentic community, and joyful mission is why Cross United Church exists.